Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Ed Pulford, one of the hosts of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Elizabeth Maguire, Assistant Professor in History at California State University, East Bay, about her book, Red at Heart, How Chinese Communists Fell in Love with the Russian Revolution, which was published in 2017 by Oxford University Press. Relations between Russia and China today often seem dominated by performances of many kinds, from shows of pragmatic geopolitical bargaining, diplomatic grandstanding from the Kremlin or Zhongnanhai, and the strongman theatrics seemingly enjoyed by both Presidents Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping, although perhaps more enjoyed by one than the other. But things were not always so full of bluntness and bluster, and the drama which which, uh, once dominated interactions between these two Eurasian land empires a hundred years ago had much more of a romantic hue. As Russian and Chinese imperial dynasties crumbled in the first two decades of the last century, and the Soviet Union began to take shape following the October Revolution, more than one young generation of Chinese people was swept up by the romance of the newly emerging socialist order. It's their story that Elizabeth Maguire tells in this extraordinarily rich, profoundly persuasive, and engrossingly narrated Red at Heart drawing as she does so on memoirs and archives in Chinese, Russian and European languages and an effortless marshalling of the deeper histories amidst which they were written. As a result, whilst the tales of Sino-Russian and Sino-Soviet infatuations, affairs, marriages and heartbreaks on both personal and political levels are spellbinding enough in themselves, Red at Heart is about so much more. Through the lives of the book's protagonists and the context in which Maguire so deftly places them, we are gifted an utterly enchanting new lens on the 20th century histories of Russia and China, as well as Taiwan, I should say, and their mutual entanglements. This is a book where themes of gender and love, education, literature and popular culture, and indeed ideology and geopolitics are all bound up together, combining to offer us a truly humanistic account of how political cataclysms may also be very personal affairs and vice versa. Now, I really can't recommend this book highly enough to anyone interested in any of these places or topics in any way at all. So I'm delighted to be able to say, Elizabeth Maguire, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Um, It's uh, great to have you on. And uh, I have to say, yeah, uh, as I mentioned, the the book is an incredible uh, thing to read and and, and so entertaining and engaging and and moving in so many ways. But uh, perhaps I could begin by asking you uh, how you... Uh, came to uh, the Russia-China topic and and what your sort of academic background is, how all of this uh, interest arose? Um, well, I was, I had been a Russian history and literature major as an undergrad, um, which I did because I had gone on a family trip, a tourist trip when I was in high school, when Russia was still the Soviet Union. And it was fascinating and totally foreign to me. So um, when I got to college, I decided to study it. And that was right around the time the Soviet Union collapsed. So 
then imagine, you know, the thing you're studying suddenly disappears. That was, you know, kind of dramatic and interesting and fun. And then I, um, and then I, I actually worked, I graduated from college in 1993 and I worked in Moscow, um, for a while with an American consulting firm. And I thought I wanted to be a business person. Um, so I did that for a while and then I moved to Washington DC and then I thought maybe, maybe I'd be a journalist or maybe I'd be one thing in another. And I ended up doing some work in, um, like political risk and kind of prediction is basically international political consulting, I guess you could say. And, um, and then I went back to get a master's degree and I was going to get a master's degree in an MBA. Oh, and I wanted to work in an oil company. I thought this would be so fascinating. Well, it's kind of fascinating, actually oil, like there's so many elements of it, right? Like there's political and it's scientific and it's cultural. I mean, so many different things, economic. Um, so, and even the drilling of oil is really, you know, it's like all this stuff really interesting. So I thought right, I wanted right. to do and this. The indigenous groups in Russia. Yeah, as well, that, were, right. You know, like all effective. the oil. And so basically I, I was going to get an MBA and I was, it was a joint degree. It was at Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. And you did half of your study was economics. The other half was an area which you know obviously I was Russia and then and then you were going to go and then they had a joint program with Columbia University to get an MBA so and then you had to take distribution requirements like you know you had to take something some courses outside of your area so then I took like a couple classes on the Middle East and I took I think I audited one on Africa and then I took a class on China and it was called Grassroots China, and it was taught by this woman, Ann Thurston, who wrote a really neat um, oral history of intellectuals in the Cultural Revolution. Um, and so, you know, that kind of blew my mind because I hadn't really ever, I don't know, you know, there's so many places in the world you don't really think that much about. Um, so China was one of those for me. And in fact, I even remember as an undergraduate, seeing the people, you know, I was studying Russian, which that was really hard as it was. And then you'd see these people studying Chinese, you know, with their flashcards. And I remember thinking, now that's crazy, right? Like, I mean, I'm crazy, but those people, man, they're really crazy. So, um, so, you know, so I didn't, and, and when I started as an undergraduate, I wanted to major in history and literature. And I, I went to the history, there was a department, history and literature. I went to the department and I said, I wanted to do it. And they said, well, you know, you're going to have to learn Russian. And I was like, what? <laughs> really? You know, because I really didn't know that. I mean, I'm from a, I'm from a town in California, you know, went to a really kind of tough public school, you know, and no preparation whatsoever for, you know, some kind of Ivy League education. So I'd be the kind of person who had no idea that you had to learn Russian if you were going to major in Russian history and literature. But I did. Um, and then I took this China class and I was totally blown away because I had never stopped to think about it. And then when I did, I couldn't believe, you know, like it was so uncanny. I remember we watched a documentary and and the documentary even, I and I don't even remember which one, but it looked 
really Soviet, you know, it was like, oh my God, just even the way they shot it, you know, and the way that, and, and I remember there was something about Mao. I think it was when Mao was, you know, proclaiming new China or whatever in 1949 on Tiananmen Square. And, you know, it even looked, well, it turned out later, like a lot of, I found out, you know, many years later in my research that a lot of the initial like film footage had been shot by um, Chinese who went to Russian film schools, which that put, you know, that made sense, but I didn't find that out right for another decade, but it was, you know, it wasn't just that so many of the events were similar, right? Like, Oh, they collectivized agriculture and, you know, they had a big violent cataclysm that claimed a bajillion lives and they, you know, just, it wasn't just that or cult of personality, like all of that. To me, the thing that was like way more compelling was almost something you couldn't put your finger on. It was like, it was like an echo or a, or you said that your new book will be called Mirror Lands. You know, it was like, it was, it was, yeah, I don't know. It was so weird. And I think the thing that was weirdest to me is obviously these are two radically different cultures. So it wasn't like you could say, oh, well, it seems similar because I don't know, you know, this is Slovakia and that's Slovenia. I mean, I'm just making stuff up, but you know, like you couldn't, you couldn't say that it was similar or the United States and Canada, you know, like, okay, yes, we're different, but you couldn't say that it felt similar because of that. It had to be similar because of something about communism. But but the trouble was, so then I kind of just looked into it. I mean, I wouldn't even say research it. I just, I don't, that was pretty much pre-internet actually. So it's not like you could look it up on the internet. But I, I think I went and looked in the library to see if there were books. And all the books that I found, you know, I didn't find that many, but I just remember they were all, things about how, like, I just remember there was a real focus on, well, when was the first Marxist, you know, work translated into Chinese? Or when was, or, or, you know, at the height of the Cold War, all that kind of fear about the spread of communism, like, how did it spread, you know? Um, Or just, like, what did Mao say to Stalin? And, and why, you know, stuff like that. And to me, like, okay, that all made sense that that scholarship was there and that people had those questions. I got that, but none of it really got to the thing that was not bothering me, but just that was, you know, kind of on my mind, which is, but yeah, but then what's this, this kind of uncanny, like similarity or like, what is this? Where did that come from? Like nothing that I was Nothing I found had anything that could explain that, you know. And, right, um, right, right. And so, so that was the question you set to answer, was it, when you uh, moved on to your doctoral? Uh, yeah. Work? And so then, I'd already decided that I wanted to be a writer. I figured writer of nonfiction. I didn't even know what discipline to apply for, but I figured probably history, since that's you know my what I had done and that was my thing. So. And then I didn't even want, by then I was pretty sure I wanted to do something about China, but I had the fear of the fear of the moment when I showed up and said I wanted to do it. And just like when I was an undergrad, they said, okay, well now you have to learn Chinese. Like I knew, I knew that I was going to have to do that. So, 
you know, almost kind of like, you know, when, what is that saying? Like the elephant in the corner of the room or like you, or no, something you're just trying so hard not to pay attention to, but the harder you try not to pay attention to it, the sort of bigger it looms. Well, that was how like feeling so curious about China was because I kept thinking, I cannot do this. I was already 30 years old. And I mean, I guess that's not that old, but you know, to start, most of the people I started my PhD with were a lot younger and they weren't trying to learn, you know, radically new languages. And, and so I felt like I was kind of older and gee, could I do this? And so I applied and I said nothing that I was interested in China. I just applied as a Russian. And, um, and I wanted to come to Berkeley. I really wanted to come to Berkeley. Um, and so I did. And then, you know, my very first year, I sort of started dipping my toe into this, but I didn't take Chinese my first year because I didn't, I wanted to check test the waters and see if I could, if, you know, how would, I really wanted to work with my, the dissertation advisor that I had. And, um, and so I, you know, I knew that and I, you know, if it wasn't going to be okay with him, I was going to try to figure something else out, I guess. Although probably knowing me, I would have been pretty stubborn and found, found out a way to convince him. But anyway, he was fine with it. So then I thought, okay, you know, I have to get the China specialist on board. So I went and got her. And again, to my great surprise, you know, she was like, oh, do it. So, so then I, that's when I started like pursuing the thing in earnest. But the fact of it is that, you know, I started taking Chinese. I think I took intensive Chinese my first summer. Um, after the my summer after my first year in my PhD program, and I mean to say I was bad is like I don't know, you know, <laughs> I was so bad. And um, and then I took my second year, and honestly, I think they pitied me, you know, like I really think they pitied me. And so then I don't know. I think I, the Chinese. I mean, it's pretty good at making more or less anybody feel pretty bad. I think that's. Uh, I, I don't know how how specific that would have been to you. Um, it's. Uh, Oh, no, <laughs> I'm pretty sure. So, um, and then I went to China and, you know, the, my, the next summer. So, and then I kind of told myself, it's like do or die either, you know, if at the end of it, I still can't speak intelligibly, then forget it. And, um, I studied really hard. So yeah, that's kind of, and then, and then I, you know, I started looking around for stuff and I found some really, I found a really fascinating memoir um, by a woman who was a child of two Chinese communists who had studied in the Soviet Union. And then she herself had grown up in the Soviet Union. So I found that memoir and it just, you know, like laying on the library shelf and I picked it up. And then at some point I like read it and I was like, oh my God, you know, here's my answer. Finally, I have an answer because I, I was just basically looking for some human beings like ordinary human beings who like went back and forth, like who were the actual people through whom the transmission, not of some ideology, but almost of like, I don't know what revolutionary culture or even aesthetics or just some deeper thing that could only be human. That It could only go through people, you know, and not just people, but, people who had some real experience of it or who like really knew what it, the it was, I was looking for them. 
So then I felt. So like- this is the this is the work going into your PhD, which then the the book kind of grew out of. Um, and and yeah, the the kind of human element, as I as I mentioned in the intro, really comes out so so strongly and and, and gives a uh, an amazing uh, perspective on on these very what are very grand scale developments uh, in many ways. Um, in terms of putting the book together or researching it for the PhD and then moving into the book. Um, you mentioned there the, the, the mem- first memoir that you kind of stumbled upon. How, how did uh, accessing the sources and, and finding out who the people involved were uh, work? I mean, how did, how did you kind of follow the, follow the path of, of, of identifying the right kind of people to look into? Well, that's interesting um, because I did a couple of things that, you know, most people do, right? Most historians are shipped off to wherever they're trying to study for a summer before they're going to like plan their dissertation to the archives to just check and see what material there is. Um, and there's this amazing Taiwanese scholar, her name is Yu Min Ling. Um, and she's amazing because she just has done so much work on Chinese Russian cultural relations. And she did this really systematic dissertation um, and she did her dissertation in the United States. So thankfully for me at that point, you know, that was in English. So, and it was on Sun Yat-sen university, which was a university that the Russians opened or that the Soviets opened for Chinese revolutionaries in the 1920s. And it was not just for communists. It was for nationalists, both parties in Moscow. Yeah. And um, she wrote this super systematic dissertation that, and when I, so I had gotten my hands on this thing. And so I had, um, you know, archival citations where she would say what file she got what from. So I had just written down all of the ones that sounded interesting to me. So I was, you know, on that first summer trip, okay, I was ready to go. I was going to go in there and order them, and I did. And, of course, you know, the nightmare of it all was that a lot of the material was handwritten in Chinese. From the 1920s, I'll add, which, you know, for anybody who doesn't already know this, Chinese language was in a transition at that point because, there were the traditional characters that I guess Taiwan still uses, right? And then the simplified characters that came along in the 50s. But from what I could tell, it seemed like in the 20s that it was kind of this weird halfway point where people were kind of simplifying some characters somehow on the fly, I guess it seemed like to me. So it was really confusing even if it had been all typed out, it was confusing. But so anyway, that was a little bit of a roadblock because my Chinese skills were obviously not there yet. But still, there was enough that was in Russian. So, so you're asking, how did I find the right people? Well, this this scholar who had done this work and continues to do this work, that was really helpful. That because then I knew like something to order even. And then on the other hand, I did have this memoir. Um, of this woman. And she was raised in a school um, that's six hours outside of Moscow. And it was a school for the children of revolutionaries from all over the world. Um, 
you know, including the United States, all over Europe, Latin America, Africa, the Middle East. I mean, basically anywhere there was a communist party, almost anywhere, they sent children to this school. It's kind of like Noah's Ark of communism or something. Um, well, that you know, they were like two by two, right? We're going to make the new world and here are the children of the new world. And, and actually this, um, it's, well, in Russian, it's called the Internationalny Detsky Dom Imni which means the Stasova International Children's Home. But um, the people who, who know it, they call it the Interdome. And then I am actually writing uh, my second book is a history of that home and the children who lived in it. And I call it Neverland, Communist Neverland. Um, so the memoir that I found was a woman who had grown up in that home. And as I looked into it, it turned out that the home still existed. So even though the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991, this thing was still open as a an orphanage. And then, moreover, I found out that it... I'm trying to think, how did I even find this out? Oh, I know. And then a Russian guy had published... Um, a Russian scholar had published an article about a couple of other children who'd... who'd grown up in that home, Chinese children. So I contacted him and he, so somehow I can't remember whether through him or how I figured it out, but anyway, the school was having a reunion and that was in 2003. So they have these big, huge reunions every five years and the alumni from all over the world show up. And I mean, these are gala events. They go for days. They're just one big party and it's amazing. All these people. Um, and so it was, there was going to have a reunion in 2003, which was right after I took my oral exam, um, for my PhD. So I just decided, okay, well, I'll come back and I'll just go to this reunion. <laughs> just go. So I went and I showed up and I started looking around. Cause at that point I was really interested in the Chinese. I didn't, that home itself, you know, you're asking, how did I know who to look for? Well, to me, I thought, well, if I find their children, then I'll you know, know them. So I walked around that reunion asking anybody who looked Asian, are you Chinese? Are you Chinese? <laughs> I was kind of really thinking of back on it, how lame, but actually it wasn't so lame because I met them. And then they, I think they thought, I said, oh, you know, I'm going to be in Beijing next summer. Can I come see you? And they say, oh, sure, sure. You know, write down their name and phone number. And I'd say, okay. And then I I think they were all kind of shocked when I actually did show up and call. So then I started interviewing them. So I kind of came at it from two angles. I I started with the archives of the schools where Chinese had gone in the 1920s. So I had kind of the historian's generic source where you get these little snippets about people, but then you never hear whatever happens to them again. But still, you're getting a good background picture of what's going on and then I had individuals because I talked to their children and then through that through them and then you know so so it's kind of like coming at the same thing from two opposite sides so that's how I figured out who to look for that's great yeah that, that makes a lot of sense and and I think that uh, as I mentioned the the 
historical context and the historian's uh, craft work, if you like, combined with the uh, personal accounts um, is what gives this book so much so much depth and richness, I think. Um, so perhaps we'll jump right into it. Um, uh, I mean, it'll emerge, I think, as we did talk, the, the way that uh, you came to conceive of the relationship uh, between some of these people and, and the, the parents or uh, relatives of, of those initial reunion participants that you met how you came to understand their relationship with the soviet union as a romance per se um and the book is structured part by part uh in a beautiful way really moving f- f- uh, in a pattern resembling um a kind of archetypal romantic story from first encounters through uh, school crushes love affairs families and finally last kisses uh, as you as you head the various parts um so into part one uh, we're in early 1920s uh, and some of these very early chinese uh, leftists potentially or at the very least uh, intellectual figures uh, who are starting to arrive in in the soviet union for the first time um and one of the key figures in this uh, time and, and, and this situation is Chu Bai. Uh, so perhaps we can zoom in on him, uh, since it's going to be difficult to talk about absolutely everything in this book, um, as a, 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 a representative of what was going on in those early days. Um, so what was his story? How did he end up uh, arriving in Moscow? And what was the romantic side of, of his inv- involvement with the Soviet Union? Um, yeah, he's kind of a... a... I think he's everybody's favorite person, you know. I think um, the famous Chinese historian Jonathan Spence wrote a book called Gate of Heavenly Peace, and it's this kind of generational story of these um, Chinese revolutionaries. And And he wrote about Chu Chiobai, and I actually didn't find that out until after I had written. I don't know how, because I love Jonathan Spence, so I'm not sure how I overlooked that book and the fact that he wrote about him. But the point is a lot of people who come across this guy, Chuchio Bai, they love him because, because he's this kind of, um, uh, how do you put him? He was a child of a gentry family that went into decline. So lost their money. Um, and you know, he's born in the late 19th century and he, He's this kind of poetic dreamer, you know, he's, wow, he wants to be an intellectual and he doesn't really want to study Russian at all. And none of the Chinese wanted to study Russian. That should be said um, right from the get-go. Any Chinese who wanted to go abroad were more likely to want to go to Japan um, or Western Europe, or if they had a lot of money, the United States. Um, So Russia was kind of a last choice in the first place. Because it wasn't, there was no glamour there. I mean, that there was just like some borderland. They were like northern barbarians, kind of. The, the Russians just didn't hold any appeal. And so it was kind of like a super non-glamorous option to study Russian. And he didn't have any money. And he, a cousin gets him a, um, how, how can you say it? Like a cousin gets him into this one Russian language school in Beijing. You know, he has these dreams of going to Beijing University, which is the big, you know, fancy university at the time and still is. And um, he doesn't get in and his cousin gets him uh, a plot, a place in this school to teach Russian. And the tuition is free because they're trying to train people to work on the 
railroad that the Chinese and the Russians operate together. And there's just not that enough Chinese who really speak Russian. And I guess, Ed, you would know a lot more about the ones who did since you do work on the borderlands. So there were people on the borderlands who could communicate with each other. But in terms of Chinese intellectuals, they didn't, you know, Russian was just not a thing. And so <laughs> he's this totally, I think the reason that I like him is he's kind of a slacker, you know, or, I mean, he's not a slacker. I'm sure he worked hard, but you know, he's like, he's, he's a slacker. Who's just like, I don't, you know, at the end of his life, he writes, you know, I, I never really knew much about Marxism and I only started studying Russian randomly. And, you know, he's the absolute opposite of some gung ho, um, dogmatic revolutionary, you know, the last kind of guy you'd think of to become some firebrand Marxist, you know, Leninist revolutionary. So he's just kind of this, this poetic guy. And then he starts studying Russian. And then suddenly, all of a sudden, China has its May 4th movement, which is kind of this moment when young Chinese radicals decide that they're sick and tired of the fact that Russia had its revolution in 19, or sorry, China had the revolution in 1911 that, you know, ended the dynasty, but now China's still in chaos and why? And the problem is we don't have, you know, our culture is backwards and we're going to change it and get rid of Confucianism. And, and then by that point, it's, you know, 1919, 1920, 1921, that's when the Bolsheviks are winning the civil war in Russia. And so suddenly you know, Russia had kind of seemed like this chaotic place. It was having a civil war. Well, China was having civil wars all over the place with the warlords and stuff. So that didn't seem so appealing. But then once the Bolsheviks were winning, um, it, I think maybe that changed things a little. Uh, and so then suddenly, and then the idea, and then the Russians started saying they were going to, you know, they were going to have this giant push to the future. You know, the revolution was all about development and modernizing and and so that seems really appealing so then at that point when suddenly this giant interest in Russia pricks up in China or I wouldn't say giant but let's just say amongst urban intellectuals here are our guy Chuchio Bai is let's just call him Chu since for all the people who don't um you know speak Chinese so here are our our, our Chu our slacker Chu is suddenly has the Russian language skills that not very many people who are suddenly so interested in the place have. And so it's kind of like he calls, he's really funny. He calls it history's mistake. (laughs) He said it was kind of like a mistake that this all happened to him because, you know, he, it just wasn't who he was. And, but, you know, he gets into it. And that's another kind of, I wouldn't say he's a lovable guy, but he's just a, it's a reason people are drawn to him is that, okay, so he's reluctant, but then he gets into it and then he gets offered a job. So even though he's reluctant about it, then once there's this great interest, then a Chinese newspaper wants to send some reporters to Moscow, which it's again, kind of hard to imagine that there hadn't been papers that had reporters there, but there hadn't. And so at least that I know of now, maybe Ed, maybe, you know, I'm always waiting for someone to come along and say, no, no, that, which I would never mind if somebody, you know, found something out that I didn't know. But from what I, I looked and looked, I didn't see any evidence that there were 
like eyewitness reporters, Chinese. I think they got their news like third hand, right? They read it from other countries' news sources. So right, right. So yeah. So yeah, just 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 to come back to Chu's sort of interest in his burgeoning uh, interest at the very uh, right, correct time, if you like, um, that Soviet. Uh, revolution or the, the October revolution is starting to uh, take root in, in further and further eastern parts of uh, the Russian empire and so on. Um, it seems to me that his interest actually encapsulates the way you write it, uh, a lot of continuing themes throughout the book, because um, at this point, although there's this revolution going on, and it's uh, it seems pretty interesting and this drive towards the future that you mentioned, um, it's also the case, right, that Chu's interest is driven by a fascination with Russian literature and, and culture. Um, and in a sense, it seems to me that many of the sort of revolutionaries and the, uh, the people traveling to the Soviet Union that you describe, they don't so readily separate Russia as a cultural sort of body, as a civilization, if you will, um, from uh, Marxism and from some of these political ideas in the early days. Um, would, you, would you say that's the case? And, and w- w- was Chu possessed by revolutionary spirit in 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 uh, a complete way? Would you say when he first uh, departed for Moscow to serve as the correspondent uh, for this newspaper? No, 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 not at all. He didn't know. I mean, the Chinese Communist Party is only founded in 1921. And it's tiny. And they don't really, they read, just put it this way, they all read Tolstoy before they read Marx. And that's partially because anarchism had been really popular at the turn of the century. And so they read Tolstoy as an anarchist. But then when they went translating foreign literature, you know, obviously we all know Russian literature is some of the great literature of the world. and So as they became, these Chinese intellectuals became more interested in foreign cultures, naturally, they also translated Russian literature. And so, and then in this moment when there's a revolution happening, they don't, I think at some point he even says something like a, I mean, they they all kind of understood it as, two and many others, understood it as this kind of in coate or process of leaping forward into the future but there was no I don't want to say no but basically almost no understanding of the Marxist theory by which you know the Russian revolutionaries operated or or why that was or what that was and instead they liked to read the 19th century Russian literature because that was kind of the moment when the Russian revolutionary movement was just starting and the people writing that literature wrote a lot about the nobility and, you know, that a lot of these intellectuals are children of gentry. And so, and then, you know, the, say Tolstoy, who's, who's anarchist and very, you know, famously pro-peasant, this seems progressive. So they're, for them, this kind of idea of a revolution and progressivism and foreign cultures and then this totally fascinating Russian culture. And and they're also in the process of changing Confucian notions of private life, love, and relationships. And so these Russian novels like Anna Karenina, which, you know, first translation of it comes out about the time that she starts studying Russian. 
first chance of translation into Chinese. Um, it's abridged, but it's there. So then suddenly you have this discussion of male-female relations. So the component of it, the component of Chu's interest particularly, but I would say he's not atypical at all of young Chinese radical interest in Russia. I would say it's like 10% Marxist and that 10% is vague. And then, you know, 20% young rabble rousing interest in someplace that just had something called a revolution. And then, you know, 30% fascination with Russian literature and, you know what I mean? So, yeah, not at all. He's, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, that's the kind of mix, the the, the cocktail, I guess, of of uh, young emotion and and uh, passion that that goes into making this such a romantic story in a lot of ways. Um, and I think an, another really important aspect of what you point out is that actually it wasn't the case that there was a clear articulated version of Soviet Bolshevism or communism uh, being pursued in a kind of fixed and rigid way when they arrived in the Soviet Union for these early revolutionaries or these early um, travellers from China. They arrived into a Soviet Union where they were still figuring things out for themselves as well, right? So it wasn't as though the revolution had matured that much uh, at this point from the Soviet point of view. So there was a, a constant con conversation going on there uh, and the translations and the interactions there between uh, revolutionary ideas and, and uh, these other personal revolutions that are going on is something that you trace uh, really beautifully. Um, a key place where a lot of this was happening, I guess, was in the educational institutions. Um, so in your sort of second part of the book, you talk about... Uh, something you've already mentioned there, Sun Yat-sen University in Moscow, um, and also some of the other uh, institutions, both in Russia uh, or in the Soviet Union and in China. Um, could you say a little bit about how uh, the educational uh, transmission of the revolution and, and, and how the sort of, as a, as a romantic setting, how did these educational institutions emerge? Um, well, I would say it's important to note that in both places, schools were seen as the vessel of change. If you were going to change the country or the world, you had to change the education system. And it meant two different things, right? For the Chinese, until, I mean, they hadn't had public schools. There were village schools sponsored by, you know, a family. but you know, there weren't, there wasn't just normal public school until the 20th century. And then, I'm sorry, China, I'm talking about China there. And then, and then for, for Russians, you know, again, the illiteracy rate was huge. And so for both, both sets of revolutionaries. So when I say that, I mean, intellectuals, you know, relatively on the grand scale of things, wealthy people who want to modernize their country. They all think the first thing to do is to teach everyone to read. And they all think, you know, that they're going to do that in these new schools. And so for both of them, it's like they're all running around creating these experimental schools. And, you know, the idea is, okay, well, if we just change the education, then we're going to make different kinds of people and then we're going to make a different kind of place and so there's a lot of educational experimentation going on so if you think about it it's already you know when when you 
you know, ordinary Joe Blow in American any town or French guy or Korean person, whoever they are today, right, goes to high school or college. I mean, think about it. It's already a pretty combustible experience, right? People are having their first boyfriends and girlfriends and, you know, it's a it's already kind of a, just a time of your life, even if you're in a stable school, right? You're in a school that's, there's nothing about it. In fact, it's kind of boring. The curriculum is set and the teachers are old and, you know, it's already kind of a, a dramatic time for people. But imagine if you're in a school that just opened six months ago and grabbed up a bunch of teachers and has decided that now we're going to, you know, now we're going to learn by, you know, doing whatever crazy thing, introducing a bajillion new subjects. And then, and then on top of that, your whole society is in radical transition. And so then suddenly these schools are almost like shakers or blenders or, you know, it's like the, the whole thing is going to careen off the rails, right, as an experience because you have all these young people who are already kind of romantic and hot-headed just by the nature of their age and then these new institutions. And so I can't remember, though. What kind, what kind of numbers What kind of numbers are we talking about here in terms of how many Chinese students were there in Moscow primarily? Okay, so, yeah, what I was just talking about is kind of in general. You know, I just want, what I wanted to say before I said that is I want to, you know, before I got to that specific thing, what I wanted to say is that it's important to understand that it's not like the institutions that I'm talking about exist in a vacuum. They exist in this population of, giant population of experimental educational institutions in both places. And so these schools, there's Communist University for the Toilers of the East, which is such a funny name in English. Um, in my book, I, just, I think I called it Communist Eastern University or something, because it's kind of funny, right? Toilers of the East. Um, so that's a school that, that the Russians open or the Soviet Russians in Moscow open for, for revolutionaries from basically anywhere except Europe. Um, and then that starts, I think, around 1921, I think, is when they open it. And then um, it continues in one form or another through almost to the Second World War, almost. Um, and then there's also, as I think I mentioned earlier, um, Sun Yat-sen University, which at some point, the Chinese are so numerous, they're, they're, they're the biggest group of foreign revolutionaries at Eastern University, so they open another one just for the Chinese, and you ask numbers, you know, it's my memory that from 1921 through the 30s, there's maybe like 8,000 Chinese or something moved through these schools, both of them together, and I'm sure there are handfuls of Chinese in other schools, and then I know there's also Chinese in the Far East, as I'm sure you know from your research. I don't know the numbers of those, but from the archival documents that I found, I think that's the number that's sticking in my head. Somewhere under 10,000 people. Um, so it's not, if you think about it, it's not that many, but if you think about the size of the Chinese Communist Party at the time, it's an enormous number of people. Right. And and a lot of the significance of many of those people, of course, is that they go on to out, uh, occupy such outsized roles uh, in the subsequent uh, emergence of uh, socialist uh, politics and, and ultimately a socialist uh, state in, in China. Um, so, yeah, you, you, you 
give this really um, amazing account of the love affairs with Russia, with politics and with revolution and so on, but also young love in the schools themselves between Chinese students and between Chinese and and, and Russian uh, Soviet citizens. Um, Perhaps, at least to me, one of the most amazing and and surprising stories uh, was that of someone who spent really a very long time in the Soviet Union by comparison to some of these other students, uh, including studying at these schools. Uh, and that's Jiang Jingguo, uh, son of uh, Chiang Kai-shek, Jiang Jieshi, as we, uh, Chiang Kai-shek as we call him. Um, I'd really be interested to hear you say a little more about his long career in the Soviet Union. Um, he uh, occupies a significant part of part three of the book, Love Affairs, because he moves us into the 1930s, really, when some of these early crushes, as you described them, are transitioning and, and, and blooming into full-blown uh, love, uh, uh, as I say, both uh, for the Soviet Union, but also in many cases in personal relationships. So uh, how did Zhang Jingguo end up in the Soviet Union? How long did he spend there and what did he get up to while he was there? This is, uh, yeah, also later president of Taiwan, I should uh, add, because this gives us amazing uh, completeness of story uh, about about East Asian communism and, uh, indeed, revolutionary nationalism in China. Yeah, there's a moment there in the early 1920s when Chiang Kai-shek himself is kind of, I wouldn't say a Russophile, but he's interested, I mean, basically, as far as I can tell, he's interested in anyone who's going to give him an army, you know, or, or, or give him some military help. But also he wants to revolutionize. He has his own vision of nationalist revolution. And so he goes, let's see, does he go, he goes to the Soviet Union and he sends his, so then he sends his 15 year old son. So I think Jiang Jingguo is 15 when he arrives. So imagine you're 15 years old and you show up in this, School, which is this new Sun Yat-sen University, um, and you're you know you're the youngest student there by far, and your father is really important in the Nationalist Party. So Chiang Kai-shek is interested in Russia, and I think he kind of sends his son there. You know, I, I don't I don't really know why exactly, except that he does want to have a really you know Russia is opening a military academy for him in in China. And I think he just wants his son to kind of, he maybe wants a son who speaks Russian and knows something about this place. Um, And maybe it's also a kind of gesture of, uh, like a personal gesture, I don't know. But he sends his son there. And then, of course, in 1927, (laughs) poor kid, you know, his father had been, in league with the Communist Party. Um, the Soviet Union had been kind of making sure that both revolutionary parties in China, the uh, communists and the nationalists, were sticking together. Even though they disagreed with each other about what a revolutionary China should look like, they are, you know, the Soviet Union is still pretty con- convinced that neither of them is big enough to do it on their own. So they, they keep trying to keep them together. Well, in 1927, Chiang Kai-shek massacres a bunch of communists and breaks that alliance. And his poor son is in the Soviet Union. Can you imagine like, you know, oh my God. And poor kid, he has to like jump up on the stage, you know. So of course there's a big brouhaha meeting at Sun Yat-sen University because this is just awful. It's not what anybody had expected to happen. And 
You know, he's got to jump up on the stage and declare that he, you know, Chiang Kai-shek was my father and a friend of the revolution, but he's not my father anymore. And, you know, something like that he has to say. And then in the meantime, he has started this, you know, sweet kind of romance with the daughter of this big warlord who herself, I think, was 14 when her dad drops her off in the school. I mean, it's kind of funny. These guys just send their kids and, you know, so he they're in a romance and then and then he breaks up with her. Oh, oh, I know. After the um, in the late 1920s, her father, the warlord father, who had been kind of dancing around an alliance with Russia, kind of doesn't do that. And so suddenly she is seen as this kind of backward element. And um, he comes under pressure uh, to break up with her. But see, he's in a bind because, but it's hard to say. So so a key thing to know is that, gee, you have to ask yourself, was he an ardent communist believer or not? And he left two different memoirs of his time in the Soviet Union. And one of them makes it sound like he was a believer. And the other one makes it sound like he wasn't. And you have to read them both and come to your own judgment about it. I decided that he was, you know, um, at least in the time that he was there. So he, so basically, you know, first he's got the warlord's daughter, he's in the school. And then eventually they close that school down. He goes to a military academy. And then at some point he just gets kind of sent off to collectivize a Russian village, basically gets sent off to convince a little village to become a collective farm. Imagine you're this Chinese guy, you know, showing up in this village, right, of Russians. And, you know, if you believe his telling of it, and this is interesting, there are archival documents, apparently, I did not get to see those, but a Russian historian published them. Um, that say that he was actually kind of good at it. He collectivized the village. Um, and then he goes to work in this factory in the Urals. And this happened to a lot of Chinese students. The schools would disband or there'd be a purge, a political purge of the student ranks. And then they would just send these poor young Chinese off to some Siberian city to work in a factory and there are these amazing letters back, you know, and one of the ones that sticks in my mind is this letter of this young Chinese guy who was with a friend, and I don't even remember what city, but somewhere forever away from Moscow. And he was asking his former school teacher in, in Moscow to send them underwear. They had run out of underwear. Um, and so, you know, Zhang Jingguo is kind of like that. He's off in this and he's working at a big factory and he meets this woman, Faina, who's the daughter of workers and they fall in love and get married. And the, the tough one about that from the perspective of my book is that neither he doesn't in his memoir say much about her at all. And she never published a memoir and she was very private. So even after she becomes the first lady of Taiwan, you know, she never writes a tell-all, oh, here's my, you know, story of my life. She doesn't do that. And so there's really basically, that was a very frustrating thing for me, actually, because um, he was such a strong protagonist. And his the fact that he had these two different memoirs that were so different made him a really compelling character, you know, because it's always a person who's not black and white and maybe 
even sees different versions of themselves and puts different versions of themselves out, that person is always going to be more interesting to, to think about and write about. So he was a great character, but, you know, damn it for my book. <laughs> he didn't, there was nothing, no firsthand account of his, you know, love affair with this woman. So um, that was a tough thing for me. But he, yeah, he stayed there till 1937, you asked. And he, his, the memoir that's pro-communist has a chapter for each year that he's there. Yeah, yeah. I see. Yeah, well, I, I mean, regardless of uh, the, the paucity of information, perhaps about uh, his, <laughs> the intimate details of his love affair with Faina, it's still a, an absolutely amazing story. And I think, um, I mean, to my, uh, to my shame, really, I guess, as someone mo- mostly concentrating on the mainland, uh, Taiwan's uh, history as a as a as a, a nexus of Russian connection and and indeed as you say having a, a Belarusian I think she was right Faina uh, so this this first lady from Belarus I, I, yeah I, it was amazing um, to learn that but moving back to the mainland I guess uh, and and especially after the communists win uh, the civil war uh, and, and establish new china communist china in 1949 um, we move into uh, part four of the book uh, families uh, as you as you uh, call it um, and what's in this part is a really interesting uh, i think look at some of the gender dimensions of that uh, of the relationship of the sino-soviet relationship during this 1950s friendship period um, as it was as it was known um, could you say something about how the fact that some of these, many of these relationships forged early on were between male Chinese revolutionaries and Soviet women, um, and and uh, the the kind of how how was it that those kind of relationships ended up influencing or and gendering, if you like, the Sino-Soviet relationship during the nineteen fifties? Huh. Well, that's kind of funny because whenever I started out and I said I was going to be writing as a romance, like I was going to write this thing as a romance, uh, I got two reactions, which is that's totally impossible because the Russians and the Chinese hate each other and they've always hated each other. <laughs> that was one reaction. And then the other reaction I got was this one. Well, who's the man then? <laughs> which one is the man? Or my favorite ones were sometimes I, I, in fact, this one guy sticks in my mind who's very much a traditional geopolitical historian. I really like him. He's funny. And um, I tell him I'm going to do this. He says, he says to me, oh, you should totally do that. You're so right. But I could never do that. I said, why couldn't you do that? He said, because I'm a man. <laughs> if I wrote that, I, you you have to write it. You're a woman. You can write it. And I said, oh, I said, well, you mean you, you're interested in this idea? You know, I couldn't believe this. And he said, oh, yeah. He said, you know. Russia is this old lecherous man and China is this young, beautiful woman. And, you know, he's, he goes on, he has this whole idea of it, you know, but the fact that what was so fascinating to me is that of course, you know, how do you put it? Gendered international relations or whatever. Well, Russia is supposed to be the man, right? Russia is, is, this father of the international communist movement going around and 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 fostering these children revolutions abroad right with these obviously female partners because they're not the ones starting it i guess i don't know but you know and then also i think 
and this is something I didn't even really know much about when I started out, and I still don't know much about it, but I guess often Asia is like feminized or or like engendered as female. I didn't know that. Um, but so, and then, you know, Russia's very dominating or that's the, that's the traditional story that Russia's a dominating international revolutionary partner, right? So if you're going to be, whether you're Bulgarian or Chinese, if you're going to be making a revolution with Russia, well, this is an old fashioned, you know, patriarch kind of domineering guy who's going to tell you exactly what to do and not to do. And on top of that, possibly get violent with you if you don't do it, right? So so that's kind of the idea. But this this kind of was what made the story so fun is that it wasn't only coincidental that it was Russian women and Chinese men, because it was. I mean, once in a blue moon, maybe somebody heard tell of the other way around, but really all of the substantial relationships, both the sort of lower level ones I came across in the archives and then the characters I ended up focusing on, those were all Russian women or, or Soviet women and Chinese guys. And it wasn't, to me, that was not just coincidental because what I saw was these Chinese men very much saw Russia as a woman, if you want to put it that way. Like Russia was a woman. And that's disconcerting to all the Russian people, especially the Russian men I ever tell that to, you know, what? No, no, you know, no, no, really, Russia was a woman because, you know, it was this alluring kind of um, spellbinding place that was kind of exotic and fascinating, but then also endlessly frustrating. And maybe on top of that, not only was, was Russia a woman, but Russia was a very fickle and you know, kind of rotten woman who who maybe one day loved you and the next day wouldn't even talk to you and, you know, was just could care less about you and had a million suitors. And, you know, so Russia was that kind of a woman. But then in person too, Russia was a woman because, yeah, okay, so they had their party, you know, communist party contacts. And yes, of course, lots of guy teachers, but think about it. Language teachers are so often, and at that time too, they were women. And so it's the language teacher through whom you're going to encounter. You're, you're going to, I mean, anybody who's tried to study a foreign place knows that your very first person, your point of contact is your language teacher. And those are women. And then cafeteria workers, they're women. You know, dorm workers, they're women. So the the people that the Chinese students are coming in contact with are actually, and when I say contact with, I mean kind of comfortable every day, back and forth, maybe not being so afraid to try out their Russian on kind of relationships. Those are women. And then, so both kind of in the abstract sense, like Russia's very female, but then for, and then I, you know, this is just an opinion because I can't, it's not like in the sources anybody actually says this, but it's just my personal opinion that these Chinese guys were also somehow empowering themselves in this relationship, right? They were trying to defeminize Asia, I guess, if you want to, they wanted to throw off 
the imperialism of the West and make China into a great power in the world. And, and they, and they also wanted to personally, I don't mean just become powerful and tyrannical. I just mean, take charge of their lives and get to decide who they're going to marry and what they believed and be participating in politics. So the men were mass. I don't know how do you even say that masculinizing themselves through this revolutionary connection and they were meeting women. So the revolution was a woman. The Chinese guys wanted to become, I guess, more engendered male, I guess. And again, I am no specialist of gender and it was a little hard for me to, to, to walk the line because I couldn't, I couldn't study everything I wanted to study and write this book, right? I could have gone off and done a whole lot about gender that I, that I didn't do. But I mean, I'm just saying that, yeah, it was, there's a big gender aspect there. And then of course, and then of course, just jumping forward, you wanted to go to the fifties. And then of course, the funny thing is then these Chinese guys, quote unquote, domesticate her, right? Because they bring her back. They bring these Chinese, uh, Russian wives back to China and set up house with them, right? So it's like they've captured this female Russian revolution and brought it home. You know, I realize I'm being a little silly, but that's how I thought of it. Right, right. I mean, these are, these are sort of grand schematic type uh, representations we're talking in here. But uh, I think, uh, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And, and the way that uh, the, the, the gendered nature of or the, the, the imbalance in male-female relations that uh, persists there from the early days right through to the 50s um, does, uh, as you outline, have a, have a really interesting impact later on. Um, and I guess it's a kind of paradox in a sense that um, if there is going to be a male-female type partnership here, as you said, other other scholars have uh, demanded of you. Um, it's interesting that when socialism as a, as a doctrine and as a project gets passed from the Soviet Union to China, well, of course, socialism is supposed to be this active and uh, uh, kind of almost domineering kind of discourse of uh, and this and this political project in a, in contrast to the weak and effete capitalist uh, uh, west uh, later on during the cold war of course um, and so china has to become kind of active and and um, taking control uh, in order to uh, take on that project from from the soviet union perhaps um, so yeah I, I i guess i'm conscious of time so perhaps I'll just move on to the final section here um, where you discuss some of the longer lasting legacies and also what happened when uh, everything went sour between uh, China and the Soviet Union in the 60s. Of course, this had many pretty personal harrowing consequences for the families that Russian uh, women and Chinese men had had. Uh, and, and of course, during the Cultural Revolution and uh, a lot of the xenophobia around that time, there were some pretty dark experiences for many of those families. Um, but I guess I'll perhaps just ask about the longer term residue of this romantic period uh, through the 20th century. Um, how has this lived on? How does the um, romance of those early encounters and all the way through the full-blown affairs and so on live on today in uh, the Chinese cultural world? What I think many people who ask that question, I'm not saying that's you, or but I think, well, let's just say when I was writing this, I struggled because I was trying to figure that out. Well, so what? You know, so all this happened, but then there was the split and communism and Russia collapsed and now we're back to the, you know, I don't know. But so I kind of tangled with that, but you know how sometimes you're 
that's like seeing not seeing the forest for the trees because all of a sudden it dawned on me that so what you're look what I was looking for is like well you know but what about now like what do is there what happened to this romance is did it affect anything or did it what did it change or what so then I wanted to know you know the status of the study of Russian language and literature and and cross cultural contact now and so I was kind of looking like that, like I was looking for blades of grass or leaves on the trees. And then all of a sudden it occurred to me that actually the thing was, I was missing the point myself, which was that before the Russian Revolution, nobody in China, as we started out and you asked me about Chichobai and I was saying like, look, the guy was a slacker who didn't even want to study Russian and nobody did. So before the Russian Revolution, these two places, they had barely even demarcated fully their border and they didn't really care about each other it was like these two places had their backs to each other you know both looking outward the opposite directions and really not caring about the other one and then they undergo and whether you want to call it a romance you know it's it would be so easy to read the relationship differently and one of the reasons I did it that way is just because it just makes you stop and think, right? It's not a stereotypical reading. It's not that I'm saying I'm right about it. I'm just saying, well, you could look at it this way as a romance, but whatever you want to call it. With the Russian Revolution, these two places just undergo this period of intense and very dramatic and emotional and, you know, um, eventful and important and impactful interaction. And then you know, that period of super intense kind of back and forth ends. But the issue is that, okay, it ends, but never again, never again would either place ever think of itself in isolation of the other. Right now, forever after, they're interrelated and they're in, their self-understandings the other one has become a part of their identity or something they're measuring themselves against or comparing themselves to or a fate they're trying to avoid, right? The Chinese, they don't want their Communist Party to collapse. However you want to look at it, the Russians now talk about development Chinese style. So what happened to me when you're asking what was the long term? Well, yes, you could look and see what whether they're studying Tolstoy or not anymore, but I think the bigger and more important thing to realize is that ultimately they've each become a part of each other's identity and and that never would have happened without that the revolutions and so I think that's the that is the big thing that's the forest yeah, no, I, I agree with you. I think we see that imprint, the Soviet imprint, very deeply on on China today and vice versa. And in a sense, that brings us all the way back around to uh, your initial kind of question, I guess, that you had for yourself about why why are these things seem so uncannily uh, uncannily redolent of, of one another? Why does this Chinese documentary film look so Soviet? Um, so, well, thank you so much, Elizabeth. Uh, we've taken up great deal of your time uh, today and uh, it's been fantastic talking to you um i'd just like to ask perhaps uh quickly our final new books network question uh which is what is it you're up to at the moment what projects do you have on the go you mentioned a book about the interdom uh what are you what are you working on currently um i'll say quickly because yeah i know your listeners are probably tired too um 
the book that I'm working on now, I actually started researching at the same time that I researched this book. And I'd originally thought I'd tell its history inside this book, but it's way too cool and big to have fit in that book. So it's called Communist Neverland, History of a Russian International Children's Home. And it's going to be a, um, you know, it'll be a book, uh, an academic monograph, but I'm also making it into an app. <laughs> and I know that sounds crazy, but um, it's a narrative. It's a, oh, it's like a, I, I don't even know how to explain it, but just put it this way. It's going to have an interactive digital um, kind of story game that's all true and it's theoretically for students, but I have a sneaking feeling that even our most pointy-headed academic friends will probably take a look at it when they, you know, when the book comes out and there's a link to the app, I'm guessing that secretly people will say they read the book, but really just play the game. I, um, so. I mean, I hope they so, do. So yeah, so so yeah, that's what I'm working on right now, but I'm very excited about it. I have still a little bit more research to do, but um, but yeah, that's, it's a history all the way through to today because it's still open as a school. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, that sounds, that sounds absolutely great, and I look forward a lot to, to reading that. Um, Elizabeth, thank you so much for appearing on the podcast today. It was really great talking to you. Oh, well, thank you. Uh, listeners, thank you too for listening, uh, if you've got this far. Uh, uh, thank you for listening to the New Books in East Asian Studies podcast, uh, which is a podcast on the New Books Network, and we will speak to you next time. Goodbye. <laughs>